Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1957 Stanley Kubrick film Paths of Glory. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Barrett, um, I want to ask you your history with this film, but what I really want to know is where did watching this film fall into your life's experience with Kubrick? Is this something you saw fairly early on? Is this something you went back to after you had um, more fully realized idea about Kubrick? Yeah, that's a good question, Sam. And I am going to say that I saw it before I really knew who Kubrick was or very early on in my acquaintance with Kubrick. Um, I honestly can't remember when. Um, I suspect I probably saw it on TV because I would have been younger. So, um, and, and I was vaguely aware, as I said, of who Kubrick was, but it certainly would have been one of my first experiences of him and made a very powerful impression, as you can imagine. That's actually, I'm so glad to hear that because my experience is, this is the first time I've seen this movie, which I, I need to point out, like, I have taught a course on World War One five times. I've been to Belgium. I've been to Ypres and uh, Northern France. I've been in preserved trenches. I've been to, you know, World War One cemeteries. And this is a movie that I've always wanted to see, but also sort of felt like I'm not sure I want to see it because I didn't exactly know what it was going to be. Um, so so I came to this movie, obviously, this week with um, having seen pretty much most other I have, I have a couple Kubrick early Kubrick holes still, but I've seen most of I've seen all the major masterpieces. Mm -hmm. So like I'm coming at this in a different way, you know, comparing it to sort of the monumental things. So um, and you may not remember this, but like, do you remember your impressions of this movie, you know, maybe before having a sense of like watching this as a Stanley Kubrick movie? Yeah, I mean, I think and I'm trying to th I think to me, it probably was more of a Kirk Douglas movie, Okay, uh, which is something to talk about with this film. It's, it's really it's a unique film among Kubrick's works and that it really has this kind of central character, which is really not necessarily true to the story to, to the book, but it's more the way the screenplay was written in a sense to, to highlight Kirk Douglas. So my, you know, if you say to me, Paths of Glory, you want to know what image comes to your mind immediately, it's Colonel Dax, it's Kirk Douglas and that long tracking shot as he walks through the trenches. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the iconic image of the film. So I think in many ways, I responded to it as much as a Kirk Douglas movie as I did a Stanley Kubrick film. Well, and Douglas really is the person who gets this movie made. So so Kubrick is coming off of The Killing, which uh, I think was pretty critically people liked, but I don't know how successful it yeah. was. Um, but Douglas Douglas was was excited about making this movie and it, it got them the budget. So this movie has a, a 1957 budget of uh, $1 million. A third of that goes to, uh, goes to Kirk Douglas. To give some comparison, the best picture of that year, it's another war movie. It's David Lean's Bridge on the River Kwai, which has three times the budget of this movie. It's also mm -hmm. twice as long as this movie. <laughs> and we'll talk about that as well, the, the length of this movie. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Douglas really is is sort of central to making this happen. Now, we've watched some Douglas movies that come before this, right? So uh, this before this, we have Out of the Past, we have Ace in the Hole, right? So so who is Douglas in 1957? He's pretty big. I mean, Doug, 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 Douglas is, uh, he's kind of at the apex of his career. Uh, so he's got a lot of literal star power and uh, little, literal financial power. 
Um, and he's kind of known for making pictures. Some of the pictures he's 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 make he makes or he's kind of known for um, are kind of in the Stanley Kramer tradition. Here, he, he sometimes makes pictures that have kind of a hum, social humanist message. Of course, we've also seen him play um, kind of kind of bad guys. Certainly, mm -hmm. uh, that's the case in Ace in the Hole and and Out of the Past. Um, this film was followed by Lonely or the Brave about five years later, where he's a, a very sympathetic character. So I would say that in some respects, Douglas was moving into somewhat more sympathetic roles. Um, but he, he, he was, he was a big star and, and every picture he makes, he gets to take off his shirt. That's, that's something we have to mention, uh, <laughs> which we saw early on in this movie. We see early on, he had a shirtless scene. Uh, uh, but yeah, you're right. He, he and his, um, production company, Brenner Productions, uh, they, he was really interested in working with Kubrick. Um, Kubrick was interested in making money on this film. He was sort of tired of, you know, the, the killing did fine critically, didn't do so well at the box office. And Kubrick wanted to make money. So um, not to spoil our conversation, but Kubrick had a happy ending for this movie in mind. Uh, and I, interestingly, and maybe somewhat ironically, Doug, uh, Douglas wanted nothing of that. So they made some changes as, as a result. The other thing we should say is that as, as part of making this film, uh, uh, Kubrick signed a it's a, it's five or six picture deal uh, with Douglas. Um, and that completely fell apart. When uh, Douglas was making Spartacus, which originally had Anthony Mann as the director, Douglas fired Mann and brought in Kubrick. And it was a miserable experience for both of them. And Kubrick um, never worked for Douglas, was released from the contract. Uh, and uh, Kubrick actually later on disowned Spartacus. And so Spartacus, among Kubrick aficionados, uh, Spartacus is not considered a Kubrick film, although I think it's a great film. Yeah, that that is one of the uh, that's that's one of the other early ones I haven't seen um, from from uh, from Kubrick. Although it's one I really like to like it. There's 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 lots to it that I think I would enjoy. Um, I think about this movie, uh, and and I, and, th and what I'm curious about is 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 this uh, an unfair reading of this movie? Um, this is, I mean, this is obviously still early on in Kubrick's career. I think this is his fifth movie fourth fourth fourth. Or fourth movie fourth movie um and i feel like it's interesting watching this and then the kill or excuse me watching the killing and then this and i feel like as i watch those i'm watching kubrick become kubrick i mean he he uh i think about the the thing you said like okay what image comes to mind when i think of paths of glory and you talked about watch that tracking shot of watching douglas walk and, it, and it's interesting because doug kirk douglas this big movie star is the centerpiece of that image but if you look at that image and think about it you're like oh i see that this is a stanley kubrick thing too it's a long tracking shot mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. also this like one point perspective where he's at the center and it's mm -hmm. it's framed like 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 it's as if it's as if he's you're watching him become the person who's going to make some of these later things and i don't know if that's unfair to this movie i mean i i think um, I, I could make the argument that I think that everything from Strange Love on, including things like Full Metal Jacket, are masterpiece movies. I like like I, I don't know that there's something that I don't love after that. Um, as and not not even love, but like where it's like this is a a deeply 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 special and kind of amazing masterpiece movie. I feel like this is I love this movie, um, but it's not fully what he's going to become. Right, right. You're you're right. I mean, there 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 are ways to talk about this movie as having many Kubrickian elements to it, and you've already identified one, which is the the style, the 
the tracking shots and you think about you know the, the reverse tracking shots in full metal jacket and how this move you know this movie kind of set, sets that up um there's lots of there's lots of tracking shots whether they're in the trenches or whether they're out on the battlefield um Kubrick himself was uh, handled the camera for the battlefield uh scenes which is kind of kind of cool um there's thematic elements in this film there's ways in which the film kind of anticipates Dr Strangelove Certainly the whole accounting of, you know, what percentage of men will we lose, you know, sounds like uh, George C. Scott's calculation in the war room in, in Dr. Yes. Strangelove. And there's this whole notion that ultimately there's irrationality underneath any military action, which, which you know, the military looks like it's a logical machine, but actually it's fueled by irrationality. So those are, those are all kind of themes that will keep coming up in Kubrick's career. But it's also not fully Kubrick, as you said, because first of all, it is a star vehicle. And I don't think, I, I can't think of any other Kubrick film that has a admirable character with whom you can comfortably identify who's kind of at the center of the film. I mean, he usually puts problematic characters at the center of the film. There's, you know, any character, there's no central character in Strange Love. If you look at a film like Lolita, the James Mason character is re re repugnant. Uh, Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange are really isn't a significant protagonist in 2001. And the list goes on goes on and on. The other way in which it's atypical. You don't think Barry Lyndon is an admirable Oh, Barry Lyndon, yeah, yeah. And the, the Shining, I mean, just keep, you know, uh, he's not he's not interested, generally speaking, in admirable people, right? He's interested in people that, well, because Kubrick believes that human beings are fundamentally flawed. He, in one of his interviews, he called humanity, humans, in ignoble savages. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways in which this film is most atypical of Kubrick is it's, it's melodramatic. Um, and melodrama is kind of a cornerstone of Hollywood, classic Hollywood. In other words, by melodrama, I mean this suspenseful, emotionally charged, filled with action and often kind of last minute rescues. And obviously, it, and that's what's ironic, it was Douglas who didn't want the last minute rescue, but that's typically part of it. But here's what Kubrick said about melodrama. He says, melodrama uses all the problems of the world and the difficulties and disasters which befall the characters to demonstrate that the world is, after all, a benevolent and just place. And actually, again, Glory kind of manages to avoid that at the very end, but but it's set up that way, and that's yeah. and that's not typical of how Kubrick usually sets up his plots. Yeah, I, I I was I was trying to think about, and what I what I was trying to avoid, and I don't really necessarily mean this but i was trying to avoid is calling this like lesser kubrick but it's kubrick becoming kubrick right yeah. he's in he's in process it's also smaller mm. um it's smaller in terms of its length i mean when i think about those from strange love on kubrick doesn't really make a short movie right mm. that they're that they're they're long production processes they're long movies um uh this this is such a such a tight compact movie it um so, so I, I told you before, I, this is our fourth Kubrick movie. So I was trying to think of something interesting to to like to start with, and I and I feel like this movie presents a what if. Now it's not a what if I want. I want to say that right on the top, but but it made me think about thinking about the killing in this, which I think are both great movies. And if that was the best movie a person made in their life, you'd be like, that's quite an accomplishment, right? Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about Kubrick's career. So Kubrick makes movies over the course of forty seven years. He makes thirteen movies in forty seven years. 
in his first 12 years, he makes seven movies. So he's <laughs> actually working at, a, at, a, at an interesting clip. And I was trying to think of like, okay, can I, comp- I want to compare that to somebody else. So I'll, t- I'll take a, a friend of a younger friend of Kubrick, Steven Spielberg in his first 11 years also makes seven movies. <laughs> Spielberg continues on at that clip where Kubrick then over the next 35 years only makes six more movies. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying I want to make this trade, but it would be interesting to say like, what if, what if you traded some of the masterpieces for a lot more Kubrick? Like what if you had Kubrick making smaller things at this clip? I don't want it, but it would be interesting. You'd get a lot more killings than paths of glory. I mean, you would you would also not get some of these other things, but I but it just it just made me think about like like there I feel like there's a, a multiverse version of Kubrick that makes these kind of movies, which takes the thing that kind of like here's the thing that's being made, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna like like revolutionize this genre, but I'm gonna put a twist on it, and it's like that's an interesting thought to me. Well, you're right. You're right, Sam. It would it would require a different universe and a and a different Kubrick because because there there's a kind of um, Aristotelian logic to what's happening, and that is as he's becoming Stanley Kubrick, he is then becoming the person who can't make films that quickly. Exactly. You know, and and of course the the classic criticism of Kubrick for those who are non Kubrickians um, is that Kubrick becomes um, obs- uh, more and more obsessed with the style of his films. So, you know, those who don't like later Kubrick will say, you know, he's much more interested in how the films look. He's much more interested in technique. Um, David Thompson in his biographical dictionary film is the hardest on Kubrick I've ever, I've ever read. And basically says all he's really interested in is perfecting lenses, which as we know he famously had to do for 2001 and for Barry Lyndon. Um, and so it's like Kubrick just becomes more and more the technician and he, and, and it's as though he wants to make a masterpiece every time out. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Kubrick had this, he was this amazing kind of polymath. And I think a lot of what happened with Kubrick was he just became obsessed with learning stuff. And I think, you know, you and I as, 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 as people, veterans of the classroom know what that's like, right? It's like the only reason I ever stopped preparing for a class is because it was time for the class, because there's always more you can do. So if you're a filmmaker like Kubrick, um, you know, I mean, how, when do you stop your research? You know, I mean, he researched and researched and researched for a film he never made, Napoleon, you know, and, and, and then he set it aside. He did the same thing with AI. And it was the Aryan papers that became AI. And then he decided, you know, that's five or six years of his life. And then he says, no, I guess I'm not going to make that. And actually, there is a similarity between him in this respect and the filmmaker we looked at last week, Giulio Pantacarvo. Pantacarvo was maybe not a perfectionist the way Kubrick was, but it was the same thing. He would get into a project. He would work and work and work on it. And then he would say, no, I'm not going to do that after all. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, it, it wouldn't be Kubrick. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. But I, but I just, it was interesting to think about like that they were on essential, like, like, like he did for for a chunk of his career. He cranked out movies, and then, and then, what's interesting is the seventh movie in that twelve year period is his is is Strange Love, which is sort of the first, I think, the first like masterpiece. And mm-hmm. then it's like, and that's the th- and and from there. It yeah. just it, it he becomes a different like that feels like the breakthrough. If if those first movies are Kubrick becoming Kubrick, it's like he has become at at Strange Love, and then it's like now I'm going to now I'm going to use this fully realized filmmaker that I am to do these other things. 
and and given that pace and given his age, um, it's likely that even if he hadn't died right after completing it, that Eyes Wide Shut would have been his last film because at that point it had been twelve years between right. films. And at the age of seventy, it's unlikely he was going to go on and make a film in his eighties. <laughs> Honestly, if we graph it out, the next Kubrick movie would be coming out this year. It's it's sort of like that's about <laughs> where we would be at. Um, so. One interesting thing about his filmography, we've talked about how he has such a varied filmography in terms of like genre and types of movies. And in some ways, you know, people argue he makes the best version of each kind of these movies. But there's one theme that comes up again and again and again. And this movie is one of them. And that is war. Mm -hmm. If you look at the 13 movies, there are uh, and you can make different arguments. There's six movies that I think have war as at least a central component to it. So Fear and Desire, which I haven't seen, but I know is, is a war movie. Paths of Glory. Spartacus, I think, has a lot of war yeah. in it, right? Yeah. Uh, Strange Love is obviously a war movie. Barry Lyndon has big sequences of war. Full Metal Jacket is a war movie. Yeah. And then, as you pointed out, Napoleon is the great unmade <laughs> Kubrick movie, which is also a war epic. Um, why do you think this is something he's so drawn to? If you figure half of his movies, even in such a varied filmography, half of them come back to this. Well, I actually have a Kubrick quote for you on that. Let's one. hear it. <laughs> Kubrick says, war acts as a kind of hothouse for forced, quick breeding of attitudes and feelings. Attitudes crystallize and come out into the open. Conflict is natural when it wouldn't be in a less critical situation have to be introduced almost as a contrivance. So it's, in other words, you know, a short way to say that is war offers, gives us uh, individuals in extreme circumstances, which kind of brings out their true nature. And of course, Kubrick is very interested in the true nature of humanity, which I really indicated. He doesn't have um, a, a very high respect for, for humanity. He says we people are irrational, brutal, weak, and silly, and una unable to be objective about anything where their own interests are involved. So I think that that's war. I mean, of course, Strange Love is maybe of all of his films is the one that most pointedly and consistently brings that out. But you're right. That is an element in all, in all of, of his other films as well. Well, and I would say, you know, partially with and, and, and what I want to do is really compare this and Strange Love, because I think I think in some ways this is they, they provide an interesting funhouse mirror for each other, um, you know, in a kind of way. But it's interesting. I mean, Strange Love is the the one where he where it's it it, it is it is really a comedy where the others there are funny things yeah. that happen in them. But that one's really a comedy. So comedy allows him to heighten a lot of those things. And I feel like in some ways. If you watch Paths of Glory and then Strange Love, you feel like, oh, I'm he's working with some similar ideas, but he's going to really heighten them this time. Uh, the, the comedy allows for that, where this the sort of drama of this, he's pointing to some same things, but they they sort of appear uh, appear differently. I'm, I'm glad you bring. I, I, yeah, I want to follow up on that, Sam, because um, there's a way in which this film in 1957 is a sharp break with previous World War I films and in anticipation not only of Strange Love but other things like Catch-22, Slaughterhouse-5, the whole kind of 60s view of war, whereas you know the, the, pre the predecessors of this film are things like the original All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930. Um, there's two films called The Dawn Patrol, one from 1930 with Howard Hawks and one from 1938 with Errol Flynn. There's um, Sergeant York, also a, a Howard Hawks film. None of those have anything like the 
Um, it's, it's not a satirical tone in, in, in Paths of Glory, but it's certainly a, um, an ironic or a sardonic tone. Because after all, it, it, the title of the film comes from the poem, um, Elegy in a Church Courtyard, Paths of Glory Lead Only to the Grave. And, I, and so I think Kubrick is, again, he's, you know, he's, he's kind of setting the mark or setting the standard for how do you do a, an anti-war film in, in some respects. And so he's breaking with any of those previous kind of traditions that even if they're critical of the war, the way something like All Quiet on the Western Front is, they still have a basis in what you might call broadly humanist values, whereas Kubrick doesn't doesn't really, Dax, I suppose, represents some kind of humanist value, but it's obviously uh, in a losing cause. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's important to note that this is a, a World War One movie set after World War Two. Yes. If you think about post the post World War Two world, um, there is far more an, an embrace of sort of absurdity. You know, mm-hmm. so you mentioned a few things and it's, I mean, I, I had some of those same things uh, written out there. Like I thought about catch 22. I thought about the, the plays of Vaclav Havel, which are very, uh, you know, Samuel Beckett in terms of like people encountering systems that are, that, that, that are logical, but absurd. Um, and then, and then, uh, you know, uh, throwing human beings at systems that, that are again, machine like systems that have a this sort of inherent um absurdity in them um i'm going to point out something that you had mentioned because i think the the perfect example of thinking about strange love and this movie as these um a heightening or a funhouse mirror so in uh, i'm just gonna i'm gonna read two quotes here from one from uh paths of glory and one from strange love and i think it it is sort of a perfect version of this so miro says to dax naturally men are going to get killed possibly a lot of them they absorb bullets and shrapnel and by doing so make it possible for others to get through 5% will be killed by our own barrage, which that alone is a really, if you think about what he's saying there, he's saying we are going to kill 5% of our own men by accident. Um, 10% going, going through no man's land, 20 more getting to the wire, 25 taking the anthill, a terrible price to pay, but we will have the anthill. And this becomes in strange love Turgenson saying, I'm not saying we're not going to get our hair must like, like, like that, that is, that is the funhouse mirror version of it. It's yes. like, you know, and, and I, again, having, having taught courses on world war one, having been to, to places like Tynecott cemetery, when mm-hmm. I read those numbers, like there, there is almost, it, it is almost this absurd comic moment except for the fact that it is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Like when you, when you study the battle of the Psalm or mm-hmm. Passchendaele and Yeeper, like, like this is what, this was actually the strategy and you go yeah. to those cemeteries and it is as far as you can see, just white headstones. And if you look off into the distance, you see, Oh, there's another cemetery there and the other direction, there's another cemetery there. And they're all along this line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and so many of those soldiers, that are buried there are in, you know, are, are anonymous. I mean, the, the most heartbreaking words to me, the, and they will always make me cry are the words, a soldier of the great war known unto God, you know, this sort of blank, <laughs> blank tombstone, you know? So I, so I kept thinking about that as I was watching the, uh, the, the one kind of, I, I'm sure most of the, most of the budget that didn't go to Kirk Douglas went to the, the, the scene of going over the top um, yes. into no man's land, which is, uh, a breathtaking scene to watch it is it's uh, i was so it's funny because this is a war movie but there's not a lot of combat in it but the combat is looks so good and, and i i have a i have a, a comment so we were my daughter and i were watching this on friday night 
Um, and we had it up on the projector on the big screen. And a couple of my son's friends, so these are high school seniors, uh, came over to the house and they just walked through the room and they looked at the screen. And and these are all people who would say, oh, yeah, I wouldn't watch a black and white movie. You know, it's like like that. That's like and they they looked at the screen and just looking at it, they said, oh, I think I would watch this. There's something like they could tell, like, by the way it looked. And it wasn't even it wasn't even that scene yet. It was when the three guys go on the night patrol. Mm. And and they said, I don't watch black and white movies, but I think I would watch this. Like mm-hmm. they could tell there's something either about the tension of the moment or I actually think it was also the quality of the image that they were like, there is something compelling about what I'm seeing here. Uh, and, you know, and then it was so that, and that just like my ears just pricked up at that point. I'm like, oh, OK, so 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 there is something here that that draws even people who um you know, and this made me think about you think about Kubrick as a photographer, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, like he he knows how to shoot this to make it look compelling, even to people who don't have any interest in being compelled by this. Well, you know, James Naramore, who has a really good book uh, about Kubrick called On Kubrick, points out that one of the things that Kubrick accomplishes in both the Night Patrol but also the battle scene is um, a really welcome clarity about what's going on. And and he he says, you know, one of the things that he doesn't like about a lot of contemporary war films uh, is that, and and I I suppose it's an intentional, you know, an intentional strategy, but uh, the way it's shot, he says, sometimes you don't really understand where you are. You don't really understand exactly what's happening. And Kubrick manages to create both a sense of chaos and, 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 you know, an overwhelming sense of what it must be like to be in that battle. At the same time, a sense of clarity. And I think part of it is the location of the camera, the choreography, the action. But also, I think, in that charge, by having Dax as kind of our focus point as we, as we move forward. But so, yeah, you get both. I mean, Kubrick was a great admirer of Wells. And so I think also of Wells's the battle scene in Chimes of Midnight, um, in same in some ways, Wells accomplishes the same thing. It's it's a it's a in, ignorant armies clashing by night to quote Matthew Arnold. But at the same time, I know who, who's who. I know who's who and who's where. And so I I think that's really one of the reasons why it works so well because it's confused and yet it's completely clear and it almost has a sense of um, of kind of absurdity about it as a result. I'm so glad you said that um, because I was comparing this to like if we think about you know contemporary more contemporary war movies the classic example is the opening of saving private ryan yeah where where the point of that is the is the your your point of view is so chaotic it's terrifying right Mm -hmm. and people who landed on the beaches of normandy say that's how it felt he's not trying to show you how it felt from your point of view and and you're right i think i think the key to that um that you know kind of dolly shot going across as the as the men are advancing is the same key to the tracking shot of dax which is we have a star at the center of this and if you follow that tracking shot it never leaves kirk douglas Mm -hmm. i mean now it's it's pulled back Mm -hmm. and and it doesn't zoom in on him either but it's like we have a we have a recognizable star in this and we know who we're following and we're we're watching him make his way across as we're watching people things explode and people die as he's moving, you know, and, and it, and we, and we know that he's the star of this movie. So we know he has a kind of plot armor in this scene. So we're, it's, it's, it's really interesting to watch him and you know, he's safe because if he died, I don't know what I'm watching, <laughs> but it's also such, you're also watching all these people sort of, you know, fall around him. I think I, yeah, I had that, that same thought of like, 
he could have shot this as a, a chaotic, confusing scene. Instead, it's like we get a little bit of a. It's not exactly like a God's eye view, but it is it's like pulled away from the action. So so we we are clearly observers, not participants in that. Well, it, and evidently at the time, I mean, it was people weren't weren't executing shots like that. So supposedly, I don't know if this is true or not, but one of the credit, one of the uh, commentaries on the film said that Truffaut, Francois Truffaut, wrote to Kubrick four years later, asking him permit, asking permission to borrow whatever the technique that, that Kubrick used in that shot. I don't know if that's true or not. It seems weird to me because uh, Truffaut also said you couldn't make an anti-war film because um, dramatizing action becomes its own argument. Uh, but anyway, one of the critics said, or one of the commentators said that Truffaut actually wanted wanted to know how Kubrick pulled that off so he could borrow it. It's interesting because I thought about that quote as I was watching this. I'm like, this is a pretty effective anti-war film to me. It is. You know? I think yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things that's, that to get into this movie a little more that I think is so interesting is that this movie, um, like I said, although it's a war movie, there's not a lot of combat beyond that scene but this is a movie that is about the distance and difference between the people planning plotting and assessing the war and the people fighting the war um so so most of this movie takes place in a french chateau you know and it, and and it is interesting that we get in the first two scenes of this movie we get a scene in the chateau where where Brulard and and Moreau are talking and then you get Moreau walking through the trenches with his own tracking shot you know, talking to the men saying, are you, uh, uh, are you ready to go kill some Germans, you know, and, it, and, and, and sort of denying the shell shock and things like that as sort of explosions are happening as wounded soldiers are marching past him, you know, that, that we get, we get these two locations and we realize that, um, that there is this distinction between the people in the chateau and the people in the trenches. And Moreau likes to think of himself as a person in the trench. You know, he says, I don't understand the people who fight, fight a war from behind the desk to be in the war. You have to be in the war, but we also see Moreau is not, is, is not that at the same time. Right. And it's, yeah. I mean, so yeah, it is an anti-war film, but it, but it's especially in terms of its examination of um, power and class. Uh, and how the military structure kind of reinforces those those power and class uh, differences. So, you know, for example, you you get the conflict between Roger and and Paris, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, they're the the reason for their animus is because they were schoolfellows, and they you know Roger disliked Paris, and so now that they're in the military, although there's no there's no inherent class difference between them, but that simple uh, introduction of military rank, you know, for Roger says, well, you know, who's going to believe you uh, versus if you offer your, your word against an officer. And so it's really interesting how um, they, that class difference as well as the military rank difference kind of gets doubled in the film, right? Roger in Paris and then Moreau and Rousseau, who won't carry out the order to uh, attack, to, to shell their own men. So I think that's that's what Kubrick is really interested in, is how war kind of both replicates and intensifies power and class differentials. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because the, the comment that Roger, may, uh, uh, Roger makes to, uh, to Paris, you know, who's going to believe you who's going to believe you over me is said like a threat. But then later in, in when they're awaiting their death and, and Roger, uh, excuse me, Paris 
tells that that story to uh to dax dax basically says the same thing mm-hmm. but it's sympathetic it's like yeah. i don't i mean no like sorry no one's like we're in an absurd world where no one's going to believe you over him and it's like yeah. it's it's almost the same words but it the meaning is different the the intent behind those words is different and i'm glad you used the word absurd because the, and that's why i was getting at earlier where in, in terms of how the film does have a Kubrickian thematic uh, element, and you've already brought this out really nicely with Strangelove. And so you have a, you have a fundamental absurdity pointed out here, and then in Strangelove, it kind of gets blown up into the entire military complex is absurd. Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 I think you know when you think about that opening scene with Moreau and Brulard, like we see, it's I, I'm I'm fascinated by the villains of this mm-hmm. movie and like who it tells you the villain is, and then who you realize. Well, who is really the villain in this movie? You know, that that there's sort of a play on this. But you you first meet Miro and he's saying, you know, uh, my ambition and reputation against the lives of 8,000 men, the life of any one man is more valuable than any star. Like mm-hmm. he is, he has this kind of statement of purpose. Yeah. Um, and we see how quickly he, he's willing to backtrack on that because it's not that many scenes later where he's calling for the artillery to fire on his own men. And when they refuse to do that, he's, you know, he has that line, if they, uh, if these sweethearts won't face German bullets, they'll face French ones. And you're like, how is this the same person? <laughs> you know, like, like, like how quickly kind of the, the ambition and, um, and the climbing nature of that. And, and, and we see that, you know, we see that also doubled with uh, uh, a potential doubling for that with Dax, right? Because mm-hmm. when Dax is presented with the anthill attack, he's like, no, like this isn't going to work. Um, and then, you know, so Brular reads him as, well, you're a climber too. And he's like, actually, no, I, I'm I'm not, you know, like, so, so, so you see a potential doubling that then is, is turned back on, you know, in that, um, in that final scene. And, 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 and Brulard, and Brulard interpreting Dax that way, which I think is really brilliant. And so I think it's really brilliant how that plays out because mm-hmm. we haven't been, able, we haven't thought about Dax that way at all. And the fact that Brulard sees that as his motivation and his goal, again, underscores um, Kubrick's view that human beings are simply inclined to see things subjectively in terms of what works to their own advantage. Uh, so that's the way Brulard would play it out, you know. And of course, he's begun the film by uh, appealing to Moreau's sense of, of ambition. And so it seems to him a perfectly natural way to explain uh, Dax's motivation. And so I, that, that's, I just love that moment because you're like, oh, wow. I could, I, it never occurred to me that somebody could see what Dax is doing from an entirely different point of view because it seems obvious to us why he's doing this. And for Brillard, it's an entirely different story. Well, and in part because Brulard's goal is to distance himself from what's actually happening. Yes. <laughs> because because that's how you get your hands dirty. And you get your hands dirty and you become Miro, right? You're you like 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 that's that's the problem, right? That that um that once things go wrong, he's all of a sudden much further away from what's happening. So he doesn't really know Dax. I mean, he's met him, but doesn't really know him. It's interesting to think about the class thing. Because I think this plays into one of the other critiques of this movie that does not bother me at all. Mm-hmm. And that is, it's interesting that the generals and the higher up officers all have British accents. <laughs> yes. And everybody in the trenches are Americans. And all of these characters are French. You do not hear a French accent in this movie. The only thing that points you to it being French is that it opens with the French national anthem. And they make a few references to France. But like this, it's hard to not think of this as a British war movie. Even when I referenced the um 
the uh, cemeteries. I could have talked about French cemeteries, but I talked about British cemeteries because it's like, well, I have these indic and it and it and it doesn't need to be French. It could be British. It could be American, right? That's sort of the point. But that he uses that as the another marker of that kind of class and rank distinction. So I actually think that works. Oh, I absolutely. And, you know, um, I think, what, you know, one of the negative reviews of the film at the time was Bowsley, Bowsley Crowther, uh, the New York Times. And Crowther was kind of at the height of his power as the, you know, kind of one of the leading critics in the nation. And so if, you know, if Crowther panned you, you were, in, you were in trouble. And Crowther could not accept the film because it didn't use French um, accents. So, first of all, I think that that, that is absurd. Um, it's an absurd criticism because one of the defenses of what Kubrick did um, that I read was, well, when you read a French novel in translation, you know, it's it's in translation. It's English. You're you're not you're and you don't read it with a French accent. So there's a way in which having characters perform with French accents is actually very distracting, I think. Mm -hmm. But but the fact that he has he has a more, uh, you know, the the fact that he then does use native English accents to make distinctions, I think is actually pretty brilliant. And I think it actually ends up giving us that kind of, uh, that kind of, we as, we, as Americans, we initially sense what that kind of um, distinction looks like. And it's, it's important, of course, that Dax, although he's a good soldier, also, you know, obviously is an American. I don't want to hear Kirk Douglas trying to do a French accent. That would be, just be absurd. But I, before I forget, though, Sam, I want to go back to that conversation between Dax and, uh, and Brulard, uh, because there's something else that happens in that conversation. Um, Brulard gives a long speech that basically justifies what they've done and what they're mm -hmm. about to do. And he gets done with that speech and there's this pause and Dax looks at him and says, do you believe what you just said? And of course, Brillard doesn't answer, right? He puts down his glass and says, I have to get back to my guests. So there's a sense to me in which even though Brillard and Moreau are cut from the same cloth, I think Moreau is a true believer in what he says. And Brillard knows he's kind of playing a game. I, that that I, I that may be wrong, but I just sense that. I, I think that when when Moreau says, you know, if those sweethearts won't face German bullets, they'll face French ones. I think he really believes that that's the way to discipline the men. I think Brillard knows they're playing a game, and he's he has a little bit more of a distance on it than that. You're absolutely right, and this is what I love about this movie. This is what I was saying about not knowing who the villain is, because uh, uh, Miro and the actor who plays Miro, uh, George McCready, yes. is per a perfect villain. He's got that, and it's a real scar. I think it was yeah. from like a car accident or something. He, like yeah. he just looks like an evil villain. And actually, if you watch this movie not knowing what's going on, you first look at Brulard and say like, he's actually like a better guy. Like mm -hmm. he seems mm -hmm. like he's willing to compromise and talk mm -hmm. things out when 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 um when uh Miro wants to kill ten percent of the men. Like he's willing to be like, well, okay, let's hear Dax out, and then they get him down to three, right? And you're like, yes. oh, I'm, I'm, I feel more comfortable with Brular in the room. And when he disappears, like when the court martial happens and he leaves, you're like, oh, that's too bad because now Moreau's going to be in charge. You don't realize until later, until the scene you're talking about, where it's like oh, Brular is actually the devil, right? Because he doesn't care. Mm -hmm. Like he's he, he, to your point, I think, like you said, Miro is a true believer. He actually 
has these kind of convictions and you can disagree with his convictions, but he has them. I think Brular has no convictions. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, let, let's kind of get through, um, you know, so, so in that scene, I have a couple of quotes that he says here. Well, this is when he's talking to Dax. He says, the general staff uh, is under all kinds of pressure from newspapers and politicians. Why should we have to bear any more criticism uh, in this affair than we have to? There are a few things more fundamentally encouraging and stimulating than seeing someone else die. Troops crave discipline. One way to maintain discipline is to shoot a man now and then. <laughs> you know, and I and I think he in those moments believes that, but you could convince him later. He would totally mm-hmm. disagree with what he just said. It's just, he's just getting through the moment. And it's like, that's the part that's, and, and, and that's why he's going to float through this and remain untouched because he's protected by this kind of class and rank and distance mm-hmm. where Moreau is in the middle. The most interesting thing that Moreau says is that towards the very end, um, when, when he finds out there's going to be an inquiry into him wanting to fire on his troops, he said, why would you go after me, the one innocent man in this whole affair? Uh, the person you're stabbing in the back is a soldier. Yes. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, yes. And, and and that's the point. And he really believes that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, you could say there's vanity there. But no, he, re- he really thinks that he has behaved as a soldier does, um, in part because he feels like, you know, what he's doing is the appropriate kind of discipline for for the men. And so, yeah, he really, he is a true believer. Um, I should also say here, before I forget it, uh, Sam, that uh, we've seen George McCready in a previous villainous role in Laura, um, uh, when his scar was actually hidden by makeup. Mm. Same same actor who was kind of born to play villains. Yes, yes. Um, one of the one of my favorite moments as I rewatched this, uh, and I noticed it the first time, but the second time it jumped out because I knew where this was headed, is when they're in that scene where they're trying to bargain Moreau down from 10% of the men to something less. Mm-hmm. Um, Dak says, well, if it's just an example you want, why don't you take me? Yes. Take the officer who's most uh, responsible for this. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that about himself, but he's saying it to the two people who commanded the attack. And it's like... Mm-hmm. It's very obvious to read that back and be like, oh, I'm talking about you guys. Yeah. You know, like like if it's if it's if it's crazy to kill, because he starts by saying, Well, if you if you're gonna kill them, kill them all, because they yeah. all did this. Yeah. And then he's like, if you want an example, take me. And then he's like, and if you take me, like, really, aren't you guys like like it he doesn't push that, but he says it and it sits there in the room. And I love that moment. Right. Right. Because you can't, yeah, because that, that would be saying that you're holding the officers accountable. And you can't and you can't do that. The failure has to be the men's failure. Yes. So let's let's talk about the three. So so we end up having these three uh, three soldiers who are selected to basically this is the literal definition of a scapegoat, right? Like mm-hmm. like they are going to take on the shame of the rest of the company because uh, we can't kill them all because we need them to fight. We need them to go die somewhere else, right? Um, and it's interesting the three people that we get. Right. Mm-hmm. We get we get Paris, who is right. There's this animosity between Roger and Paris. So it's a chance to kind of clean up this other problem that we saw before mm-hmm. that Roger has. You get Arnaud, who is a war hero, mm-hmm. uh, you know, decorated for his bravery. So it's so you get the the, the weird absurdity of like uh, he is the most courageous person we have, but we're going to try him for cowardice. Um, mm-hmm. And he and, and you know, what's interesting is like um uh, Paris didn't go over the top because he was physically incapacitated. He was knocked yeah. out. Um, Arnaud does go over the top, mm-hmm. just doesn't go far enough for them. 
And then Farrell uh, also goes over. The, so, so the two two of the people they're killing for cowardice are people who fought. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like you know, and and he's there. He's the most scapegoaty, I think, because he his his reason is like he, he even says I'm socially undesirable, right? I am the the literal marginalized person. I am the person who everybody else can turn their um, animosity. Anybody else in the company can turn their animosity towards. And he he uh, Kubrick casts Timothy Carey in this, who is himself that kind of of person. From, from what I know about him, is a very strange man. <laughs> Yes, he's a very strange man, and he had a, uh, he, I mean, yeah, talk about typecasting, and he he always played, you know, these weird, semi-psychotic, all totally psychotic characters. Uh, he also had a, a very powerful streak of self-undermining, so in fact, he didn't finish the film, they had to fire him because he staged his own kidnapping, uh, and then would not cooperate with the, with the authorities. Um, he also had appeared in uh, in The Killing. Uh, mm -hmm. So he'd been in another uh, Kubrick film. And then as long as I'm on that as a, as a brief excursus, um, uh, jo Joseph Turkle, who plays Arnaud, is the bartender in The Shining. He's Lloyd. Yeah, he's Lloyd in The Shining. And uh, and then the and then the other connection is not a Kubrickian connection, but Ralph Me Meeker, who plays Paris, was, of course, um, uh, the detective in, um, in Kiss Me Deadly. Deadly. Yeah. yeah, and this is probably Meeker's finest performance. He's, he's great. He's great. He's great. And somehow he never made the breakthrough to, to film stardom. He ended up doing a lot of TV after this, but he's, he's quite wonderful, almost unrecognizable with that, with the beard. Oh, I, I wouldn't have recognized him had I not known it was him. And, you know, I think about kiss me deadly. And then I mean, we talked about that as an example of a movie where the, um, uh, the filmmakers don't like their main character. So he's not particularly sympathetic or likable, but yeah. he's like you said, I think he's fantastic in this. Yeah. Um, so we get that, we get that, we get the actual court martial, um, which so, so in my head, I'm like, okay, so this is a war movie, but this is actually a courtroom movie, but it's really not that either. Like that, that scene goes by way faster than I expected. And again, that is, uh, you know, a, Kafka kind of trial where it's like we're having a trial but you're already guilty and we're going to refuse to have any evidence or really ask any meaningful questions or interrogate the questions at all so um so it, it I mean it is a show trial to justify the executions that they want to do as an example to the other men and um I mean that that is that's a, a, a sort of a, a terrifying moment and I love here's another moment where you're like oh we're in the hands of a, a really great filmmaker when each of the men are brought up to the stand. He shoots them in very tight close-up with mm -hmm. deep focus. So you see everything behind them, yeah. but their face is 40% uh, of the screen is just their face in close-up, but you just get everything else behind them. So you're, you're, it's like you're forced to confront them in yeah. a, in a kind of way. And it's, that's, it's, uh, it's interesting because he doesn't always make big choices like that, but when he does, they stand out as pretty bravura choices, I think. And it's another Wellesian touch. I mean, mm -hmm. that the, the deep focus, the wide angle lens, uh, another way in which he's learning from Wells. Yes. So then we get that we get the, the men convicted. Uh, we get the the night before the execution. The the, the general uh, Moreau sends in a big plate of duck. Uh, we have the priest there. Um, we have the the confrontation. So we see each man sort of wrestling with like, how do they approach their imminent death? Like Farrell is, is basically having a breakdown, mm -hmm. you know, weeping. And, and I mean, it's pretty affecting to hear just somebody keeps crying. I don't want to die. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, knowing that that's, what's going to happen. You have, um, 
Paris, who, you know, is talking to the priest and has these, like, I don't think that I believe, but like, should I do confession? And then you have Arnaud, who is the war hero, who is, you know, holds up the bottle of wine and says, this is my God. And, you know, <laughs> and, and then, and then you have, uh, when Paris knocks out Arnaud, you know, at first I'm like, why are they doing that? And then he, it's such a great setup for like, basically Arnaud is mostly dead at that point right he has the skull fracture and one of the the craziest lines is when the doctor says yeah. if he's alive in the morning pinch his cheeks a few times he may open his eyes the general wants uh wants him to be conscious for his execution yes once again uh, it's another kubrickian touch of of absurdity right make sure yeah. the guy you know you, you don't want him to die because you have to kill him Right, yeah. right. And so you so when you get to the execution, which is masterfully done again, uh, visually, you have him, Arnaud brought out on a stretcher, literally tied to the post, looks like a dead body there. And then you get the 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 way he shoots the exit. I was wondering, like, are we going to see the execution? Is he going to cut away? What is he going to do? And we get a basically a three shot of the three men tied up. And we watch them all get shot and their bodies kind of do different things as they, mm. as they take the bullets. And, uh, that I was, I was really, I was really impressed that what he, how he did that. Cause I was, I was wondering, is this going to be a, just as the bolt guns are fired, we cut away to people's faces right, and instead right. he stays with it yeah, and makes and us I, watch. I, another thing that, uh, that uh, was characteristic of Tim Carey that would drive a director's crazy and especially something like Kubrick, cause he did a lot of, um, extemporizing uh and so a lot of what he's saying on the way to 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 be executed is um are his uh, his kind of ad libs but kubrick liked him so they kept him in yeah. the other great line Appar- apparently in that i guess apparently in that scene he also you know how he's kind of like biting the priest's arm oh yeah <laughs> he's yeah, really yeah. biting the priest and the priest the guy's playing the priest is like you've got to stop so did you do you, do you know uh, uh, another aside emil meyer who who plays the priest uh, you and I just saw him recently, uh, Sam. He was Rufus Riker in Shane. Oh my goodness! I would not yeah. have known that. Yeah, you, no, you would not. You, I, you never would have known. Never, ne- never would have known. Um, no, uh, but Perry as Farrell has one of the other great moments in the, in the film when um, I think it is it. I can't remember if it's Arnaud or Paris that's complaining or saying, "Look at that cockroach." You know, tomorrow I'll, it's I'll be Paris. dead. It's, it's Paris. It's Paris. Because uh, yeah, it talks about the relationship with his wife. And so tomorrow I'll be dead and that'll be alive. And then Farrell crushes the cockroach, right? And says, now you got the edge on him. Yeah. That, that's just, that's just a great, that's a great one. That's yes. just a great, great scene. So, so we, we have a few minutes left and we need to talk about the ending of this movie. Cause yes. if you didn't already think this movie was great and now I'm going to make the case, maybe this is a minor masterpiece. Like, <laughs> like if you didn't already think it's great and it is, he has one of the better endings that because I, I was wondering like how do you end this movie right yeah. so you have the you have the scene where Moreau is is trying to get Dax to to like be ambitious for or excuse me Brulard is trying to get Dax to be ambitious for Moreau's position but then we cut to the cafe and it's like all of all of Dax's men are in this cafe and uh they're drinking like this is you know they're they they basically know this is our last little respite before we go back to the go mm-hmm. back to the trenches and um, the the uh, guy who runs the cafe brings out this woman who is a German. Uh, uh, I don't know if she's a, she. A, would we call her a prisoner? I don't know exactly. Yeah, what her, yeah I guess. Yeah, a German woman who is yeah. in his yes. And uh, and you know, at first you watch these men, um, sort of like 
hooting and you know taunting her in a kind of way and it's and you have this moment of like i am not comfortable with where this is going because this movie if this movie is about humanity and a take on humanity and how like uh selfish and 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 bad humanity is you're like this is setting up for something that i don't want to see and he turns that on us too because she starts to sing and at first they're continuing to hoot and holler and then all of a sudden they all start to see, so she sings this this German folk song about a soldier who's at war and his beloved is dying and he goes back to her and she sort of wins them over and they're humming along. They don't know the words she's singing in German. They're humming along with her. You see the men start weeping and it's like, if this movie is about the inhumanity of all of this, Kubrick gives us this picture of like how... It's really a beautiful picture of you of another side of humanity here. The they have the ability to empathize with her, and her song is really empathizing with them in terms of they're far away from their homes and their families. Uh, and and then you you see Dax on the outside, and he's list he's not in the room, but he's listening. And uh, the sergeant comes by to say, well, we're supposed to we're supposed to report to the front. And Dax basically says, like, just give him a few more minutes, like give him a few more minutes of this kind of humanity before we throw them back into the machine. Um, I loved that. Well, you know, I have to say to, to sound our theme one more time, uh, Strange Love also ends with a song. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, Vera Lynn, who. Um, who sings the song at the end of Strange Love also released a version of this song. Uh, it was actually a big hit about the same time as did Louis Armstrong. Um, but it, it's interesting because Ebert comments on the song and says that usually songs at the end make us feel better. He says this song makes you feel more forlorn. forlorn. And he sees it as a kind of a twist of the emotional knife because of what you said earlier, Sam, and that is, Yes, right now they're having this moment of shared humanity, but guess what? They're going back to be fodder uh, again. Um, the other irony of the production of the film is that the actors or the extras in this film are all German policemen. Oh. Uh, he filmed this outside of Munich, and so he rounded up these Germans. So it's funny that you got the Germans playing the French soldiers singing a German, humming to a German song. Well, okay. I I, want to know your read on this ending because I do, I mean, I do agree with the absurdity of like, and and the twist of the knife that they have to go back to the front, but there is, it is this picture of like, but there is something else there. And there is this, like, maybe this is how we survive absurdity is by trying to create these moments because it is important that she's not just a woman singing a song, but she's a German woman singing a song, right? That they are enemies and they're able to see each other as people where, the French officers and soldiers are unable to see each other as, as people. Right. So how do you, I mean, what's your read on the end? Yeah, I, 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 I quoted Ebert, not because I agree with him, because I think it's that that's, that's a perspective. I don't respond to it that way either. I, I, I think part of how I respond to the film, to, to the scene is also, it's, it's also, it's guided by two things. One, it's guided by what you described earlier, which is, the woman who is, it looks like she's about to be humiliated and maybe worse. And she is, you know, she's been brought out as an object. The fact that that transforms into a moment of shared humanity. Yes, it, it it's part of a, a criticism of the war, but it's also, I think, a moment of hopefulness or a moment of, of a reminder that there are 
there can be deeper ties between between people. And the other thing that guides my interpretation is Dax. Um, Dax listening at the door and saying, you know, basically leave them, let them let them have this 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 moment. So I I find it more more comforting, I guess, than than maybe Roger Ebert does. And in that sense, I would contrast it with the end of Strange Love, which is really it is another twist to the knife. Uh, well, and and I would say, and here's where I would bring in Full Metal Jacket, right? Full Metal Jacket is a movie about about how do we take these young men who are human beings and turn them into killing machines? I mean, that's the that's the the job of the first half of the movie is trying to do that, and you get this sense that like, you know, Private Pile has been broken, but Joker is like he is sort of floated above it. He's maintained something through through uh, boot camp. And then you get to the second half of the movie and you're like, okay, but now what about war? What does war do to him? And you wonder about how mm-hmm. does Joker walk out of the end of that movie? And I look at this and I say, well, these folks have seen some of the worst combat you can see and they're still able to do this. Right. So, yeah, so, yeah. so, so, so I, what I'm wondering is like, does this ending fit with the rest of the sort of Kubrickian worldview or is this a, a weird little shining light that isn't always there? Well, like I said, I think it depends on how hopeful you want to see ending being, and maybe and maybe uh, Ebert's interpretation is actually informed by later Kubrick films, as opposed to if you take it at the moment he makes the film, you could say yes, it's more hope than we than you typically get from Kubrick. Um, I have to mention it's his future wife who is the yes. same. Uh, just 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 to close that loop. Uh, but but I, I guess what I'm saying is, is is in your read, do you think this is consistent with not? with what you see in the rest of Kubrick, or do you feel like this is a, an interesting early departure? Or is this maybe not a fully Kubrickian moment? Like, like how do you read that? Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I, 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 it's, it's not, I think it's Kubrick trying to figure out how to end the film. And okay. I, I'm not sure it's exactly a typical Kubrickian ending. So it's maybe this is another Kubrick figuring out who Kubrick is. Who Kubrick is, yeah, that's yes, right. perfect. Yeah, and right. it's also he's also a younger man. Like that, yeah. that is a part of this as well. Well, Barrett, uh, we are running short of time. There's is there anything else you want to say before we uh, close the book on this? Uh, I think if I started, Sam, we'd have ten more minutes. So I'm just okay. going to leave it there. <laughs> All that is to say, people should watch this movie and watch everything Stanley Kubrick made because you can just keep digging into this. This has been awesome. What do you have for us for next week? Well, I think we should um, we should get another French take on this war with a very different kind of film, but another masterpiece, and that is uh, Jean Renoir's um, Grand Illusion uh, from nineteen thirty-seven. I think it's time to revisit that. I cannot. I've and again, I I have a big hole in terms of not seeing World War One movies, so I've never seen Grand Illusion either, and I'm very excited for this. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film for having this conversation. Uh, this is our fourth Stanley Kubrick movie. We only have nine more we can do, right? So, uh, but we'll we'll enjoy them all when we get to them. Uh, thank you for having this conversation. Uh, thank you uh, for for doing this podcast. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about the Grand Illusion in the video store.